0: Welcome to Political Rewind this Monday morning. I'm Donna Lowry, host of GPB-TV's Lawmakers in for Bill Nygut. Last week, Georgia saw two horrific shootings in as many days. A gunman in Atlanta shot five women, killing one of them and sending three to the hospital. Two of them with critical injuries. We're thinking of them this morning. And just as we were collectively trying to wrap our heads around those events, a second shooting in Moultrie in South Georgia came a day later. We're still learning more of the specifics after a man shot and killed three women, then turned the gun on himself. A bleak week in Georgia. Sadly, we are not alone. Over the weekend, a gunman killed eight people and injured seven at an outlet mall in Allen, Texas. So joining me to unpack those somber stories are our Monday regular, Patricia Murphy, reporter and columnist at the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. How are you, Patricia? I'm
2: doing well, Donna. Thanks so much for having me on today.
0: It's always good to have you on. And we have GPB's own Stephen Fowler, Fowler, who joins the panel. And Stephen, you're kind of on the baby watch, soon to be a first-time daddy. We're glad you're here. Exactly.
3: (laughs) Thanks for having me, Donna. Always good to talk to you, and this may be the last time we talked for a couple months.
0: And that's it. Well, we'll be happy for you. We're really excited. We're also joined by Axio Atlanta's Emma Hurd. Good morning, Emma.
4: Hey, Donna. Thank you for having me. Weird weird to be without Bill here, but we're glad to have you.
0: It it is. It really is. And finally, Morehouse College professor of political science, Adrian Jones, joins our show. How are you, Adrian?
1: I am excellent, thank you, and it's very good to see you.
0: Yeah, I know we're going to get into some really tough topics today, but they're important. This conversation (laughs) needs to take place, and we're going to do it at the end of last week. We certainly learned 24-year-old Deon Patterson was charged with one count of murder, four counts of aggravated assault after he opened fire in a Northside Medical building in Midtown Atlanta. Northside Hospital I should say, medical building. He led police on a nearly eight hour manhunt. And Patricia, we've since learned more about Patterson and the circumstances of the shooting. Can you talk about that a little bit?
2: Yes. So what we learned about Patterson is that he is a uh, Coast Guard veteran. He left the Coast Guard fairly recently. He was with his mother um, when they went into that Northside Medical Building in Midtown. They were looking to get a prescription for um, an anxiety condition that his mother said he has. She said that he had been recently put on a different drug through the VA. And she said she felt like that led him to have what she called a mental break. She said he's been struggling with mental health for some time now. So they uh, were running late to that appointment, went in and were told they weren't gonna be able to keep that appointment. And um, in that moment, he opened fire and there were simply other people waiting to go in to see the doctor. That is my husband's doctor's office. He was there two days before in that same room. And he said, I know, it, you know, he he said, that it's just regular people waiting to go in and see their internist or whichever doctor they're seeing. Um, the last thing in the world you would expect, obviously, is to have something like this. Um, uh, at that point, he, uh, the suspect, fled the building, um, as you said, led the uh, uh, carjacked a car and uh, went up to Cobb County. We're still trying to understand why he went to Cobb County specifically, um, but that led to an eight-hour manhunt. Um, it, in in the end, it was uh, really the city's web of cameras that helped track him down, helped understand where he went, how he had gotten on uh, to the expressway, and then they finally found him. But I think it leaves all of us with this, just very familiar feeling of how did this happen? And also, why does it keep happening? Yeah, I think we all
0: kind of put ourselves in our doctor's office and kind of imagined what that may have been like as we as everything was unfolding and still thinking about A doctor's office thinking about what uh, what that means to all of us and how important that is in terms of our health, our family's health, all of that. And something like this happening. Of course, there's always these political implications when things like this happen. Um, This tragic shooting sparked a nationwide reaction. Senator Raphael Warnock was one of the first to address it. He did so in the Senate in a really moving speech uh, saying his own children were in lockdown as the police looked for the shooter. Take a listen.
1: I have two small children and their schools were on lockdown, responding to this tragedy. They're there, I'm here, hoping and praying that they are safe, but the truth is none of us is safe. As a pastor, I'm, I'm praying for those who are affected by this tragedy, but I hasten to say that thoughts and prayers are not enough. And in fact, in fact, It is a contradiction to say that you are thinking and praying and then do nothing. It it is to make a mockery of prayer. It is to trivialize faith. We pray not only with our lips, we pray with our legs. We pray by taking action.
0: Very powerful speech by uh, Senator Warnock, Governor Kemp also put out a statement on Twitter that night thanking law enforcement for their response. But Stephen, the, the responses to the Atlanta shooting really fell along typical party lines, right?
3: Right. And and it's like we've seen with just about every other shooting that we had, including the shooting, uh, the mass shooting from a couple of years ago, with the Atlanta spa shootings and the murder of several women who worked at different massage facilities around North Atlanta. And that in most political issues that we have today, it's a typical party line react. You could almost use chat GPT, you know, or like AI to write out these responses from these politicians on either side of the aisle. You know, when something tragic happens with guns, Democrats point out different policies that they have promoted to make it harder to obtain guns or harder for people with mental illness to obtain guns or things like that. And Republican politicians often will mention thoughts and prayers. And now's not the time to politicize tragedy, which is uh, close to a verbatim quote from the Texas congressman who represented a district where there's another shooting that happened that we'll talk about later. And so there's not much new ground at this point. There's not much new Things that can happen with mass shootings in America that uh, create and elicit new reactions from people, and so in many ways, it's just rewinding and replaying a lot of the same conversations that have had really since. Uh, was people have pointed out the the Sandy Hook massacre, where several elementary school children were murdered in a mass shooting.
0: Yeah, it's almost desensitizing people to even those responses. Adrian, how difficult? Where are the political optics on these shootings, you know, especially for Republicans, do you think?
1: I guess I feel like um, not only do we need gun law reform, but we also need the thoughts and prayers, but we also need cultural shifting and adjustment with regard to gun violence and regard to the lives of people who are dying. And I think that when members of the GOP respond in the manner that they do thoughts and prayers or um, praise for the resolution of what happened, for example, to this young man, um, it maintains that threat of violence, right? We're in a moment where there's a serious political divide um, there are strong class and racial undertones that I think are maintained by um, not responding in a in a humanistic way that encourages us to live in an, in a governmental environment where it matters to people what's happening, for example, with guns on the street. I it's really scary literally for going out places but I just think um it's dangerous beyond the politics yeah I mean Emma I think you know it's it's one thing for
0: us to hear about these stories other er, other places but then to have it happen it and happen in the in it the city of Atlanta in a uh, Moultrie we'll talk about a little bit more in the, in a moment um it re- really um changed things for I think a lot of us but we're, you know, it just keeps happening over and over again, so that this political part of it is, um, I think it's really tough to to kind of wrap our hands our heads around.
4: yeah. and I mean, I think this pattern that we've seen is also perhaps reflective of the fact that the bills that have passed into law haven't stopped these um these incidents. I mean, think about Columbine. And Colorado passed a slew of bipartisan bills at that time, both to strengthen um actually the rights of like lawful citizens to, to defend themselves, and you know, um tightening restrictions on private gun sales and banning straw man purchases and things like that. And yet, as we know, Colorado has seen many shootings since, just as so many other states. So we do, I mean. <sighs> I do want to point there are some things, you know, there was a federal um bipartisan law that passed last year with money for mental health, with um certain restrictions, a federal straw man ban, for example. Um, you know, I'm kind of watching Tennessee with much interest because you have Republican Governor Bill Lee there who has was personally affected by the mass shooting um there in March, and he's intends to call a special session just to focus on gun control in a Republican state so perhaps perhaps there's something there that might be done but we are grappling with a situation where no matter what law is passed it seems i'm georgia the united states has more guns than people so even if you pass a law what happens to the guns that are already out and then as we know with with mr patterson who his mom has said was struggling with mental illness in a severe way um what do we do about that side of this crisis,
0: too? Yeah, and I want to get into that in a moment. I do want to mention we did have right after everything, the governor, Governor Kempham assigned signed this legislation, the Safer Hospitals Act that would allow hospitals to create their own police forces. Um, could this possibly help? Um, I, I know that it's something that people who work in hospitals have wanted something like this. No,
2: I'll take. T- yeah, uh, Patricia. Yeah, I'll take that. Um, well, the reason that hospitals are really begging for this kind of support is because so many mentally ill people are brought to hospitals by sheriffs who have nowhere else to take them. And so they bring them to typically NER ER um, for sort of emergency in inpatient treatment, there are rarely the beds to send them to, and so they remain in the emergency rooms for hours upon hours upon hours. Um, uh, usually with a sheriff's deputy, they are typically required to stay there. Um, but hospitals are now a major intake center for people struggling with mental health because there are not the inpatient beds to send them to. Um, the Georgia legislature did pass a huge expansion of mental health last year but the follow-on to that bill uh this year was blocked by senate republicans and on the last day of the session um it was really caught up in um back and forth over a separate bill but that bill was then slowed down um to uh uh essentially to uh kind of grind the works for other bills that didn't go when when the Senate leaders wanted a separate bill to go. So that is to say it it was stopped mostly because of reasons that didn't have to do with the underlying bill. So there was an opportunity to continue to expand that mental health network that is so drastically underfunded in Georgia, um, but that didn't happen. Um, And I do want to also say that the approach to Uh, Gun violence from uh, kind of the most conservative Republicans, of of course, is the line, the only way to stop a bad guy with a gun is to have a good guy with a gun. Um, But that has just not proven true, that that was not the case at the bank in Louisville, which is obviously heavily armed because it's a bank. Um, They expect crimes to take place there. There's no way to stop these things in so many cases without really backing up the problem. It's too late once somebody is at the threshold of a building full of innocent people. And I think the frustration that I hear from um, just people in the community, not politicians, not people trying to pass bills who are frustrated, but just normal people living their lives is to say, why aren't they trying harder? There are many things you could do for gun violence. Why not try some of them? Why not try all of them? And again, it's not just the mass shootings. Sunday night, there were two men killed in Atlanta with almost no fanfare. It wasn't at a medical building in the middle of Midtown at noon. And so it just sort of passed under the radar. But these killings are happening every single day. Yeah, Adrian, your thoughts?
1: Can I just make an argument that, I mean, beyond this, I feel like we really need to think about the mental health of the nation. You know, Americans appear to be frustrated and angry and defensive, and I would argue insecure about the possibility of being taken care of in a way. Um, When I see these mass shootings, which this is, (laughs) you know, I'm making this up, but it seems to me that historically Americans have violent systematic outbursts right the mass shooting sort of pick up in the late 40s this is as lynching comes down right i'm saying we have a history of um sort of being able to kill people um expressing our frustrations in violent and public ways that I think just hasn't been addressed. And it seems to me that it just will morph and it will continue to morph until we recognize the young man who was in the medical office, um, the person at the Louisville Bank, as representative of America as a whole. I mean, we all need some kind of mental attention. The rest of us are out here sort of ignoring it. Allowing the fact that every day there is a mass shooting and, you know, I don't think we feel empowered either to do anything about it, but this is a continuous problem and obviously it characterizes us. Yeah.
0: Stephen, a lot of what we've been hearing is uh, some of this, uh, you know, the the guns are the issue. But the, with the mental health issue, a lot of this is coming out of the pandemic. And, uh, you know, some of the experts are saying that this is this is uh, this is kind of a release, I guess, that people have these these mental illness um, issues. Are they releasing them in this violent way and then guns are there? I don't know.
3: I mean, it, it, it's it's a bit of a red herring. To say it's not guns it's mental health, because these are happening and they're, they're predominantly happening in states where mental health funding is lower or mental health funding has been cut. And when there are legislation has been proposed about the state and federal level to address specifically how mental health interacts with guns of either mental health checks before purchasing or red flag laws or some sort of capability where somebody who knows or, or where there is a known interaction where somebody is not in the right mindset to do something about their access to guns. I mean, in in the most recent mass shooting tragedies that we've seen in the days and weeks that have played out afterwards, there have been reports of, well, we didn't know that they had a gun or we didn't know, you know they were being treated for this or they were being treated for that. And there are answers there that legislatively have not been taken up by Republicans who control legislative chambers. And so to say it's not guns, it's mental health is not addressing the issue is a little bit like saying, you know, well, it's not an issue with cars. It's an issue with people who decide to drive 100 miles an hour and then not doing anything to lower the speed.
0: Yeah, Uh, it's the other part about this is it's everywhere. It's urban. It's suburban. It's rural. It, you know what we saw in Southwest Georgia and Moultrie. The gunman killed three people before killing himself. It's, I think that that's the other part of this that's uh, that is hard to um, to wrap our heads around as we can't put it into any little any box in in a sense because it's everywhere and it's happening to all sorts of people to all levels.
4: Right. And I mean I think there've there've been 200 mass shootings this year so far. I mean, it's May. And to to Patricia's point earlier and to what you're saying, you can't put it into one box because there are so many um contributing factors to this tragedy that we see on repeat and so I think um advocates are looking for many different let's try several things let's come at this from all the angles yes mental health crisis but um you know not all mass shootings are perpetrated by people with mental illnesses so that's not the only answer um and there were bills introduced by democrats related to you know safe storage of guns um increasing penalties for those who might you know, contribute to a gun getting into the hand of a minor, for example, waiting periods on purchases, um, universal background checks, and those bills go nowhere. And as we know, often with the General Assembly and any political body, I might argue, um, you know, the moment can do a lot. And right now, the session is over. We don't have a session until January. That's quite a long time in political time. And, you um, You know, I wonder about what kind of pressure people really feel at that time. In Tennessee, the session was in when this happened. Um, The governor himself was very personally affected. And so that created a moment for action. I remember back when um, I believe it was, please someone correct my memory if I'm wrong. The spa shootings happened during the session. And Speaker Ralston said, no, we're not passing any expansion of gun access bills this year because the time just doesn't feel right. Um, That was a moment that put pressure that made change. Now that bill permitless carry did pass last year, as we know, um, when the moment had passed. So what will happen in the next, um, in the months to come, as we know, these tragedies keep happening. So it's hard to say, but I do know that the pressure that any lawmakers might've felt if they were in session at at this moment is, um, you know, session is a, lot, a ways away at this point.
0: Yeah, sadly, you know, next January through March, it, you know, things could be different. Like, uh, but uh, sadly, um, also, that we, the way things are going, I think it's coming, it, the, you can, I think the statistics are one a week of mass shootings that they're at this point. Uh, so we, we, may, um, we may still be hearing about these. I did think it was interesting that, you know, The one thing they did pass dealing with the health care facility, because I sat in on the hearing dealing with this, with health care facilities experiencing violence, that that new law that the governor... Actually signed right after all of this is that doctors and nurses and other hospital workers have wanted for years. Uh, State Representative Matt Reeves of Duluth he sponsored the this Safer Hospitals Act. And during one of the hearings that I listened to on the bill, he had a nurse testify and she pointed out that in a 2019 study by the American Nurses Association showed that one in four nurses have been assaulted at work within their careers. And that nurse talked about a patient assaulting her and breaking two of her ribs. Um, one of the things she mentioned is how hospitals are unique in in that as public places, people can't really be banned from coming in because it's a health care. Facilities, so it's kind of hard to turn away people who need care. So I just wanted to mention that as we think about all of this, and and as you know, you know, we're hearing talk of maybe needing to put medical metal detectors in every place we go in, and that kind of thing. So it, who knows um, what we're going to what we're going to see uh, ahead? But it's something I do believe that lawmakers are going to have to talk about a lot more on both the the local the state and the, uh, the national level. Um, while there's still more to learn about these shootings, I, I do want to end this part on a kind of a bright note in the, that amid all the sad news, one of the five women shot on Wednesday left the hospital on Friday, and we're thankful for that and wishing all the victims and their families well. But right now, we've got to go um, have our first break here. But when we come back, we'll look at the budget the governor signed and the budget Mayor Andre Dickens is proposing. First, these messages.
3: Thanks for listening to Political Rewind. If you like this show, you'll also like Georgia Today. It's a daily podcast from GPB News, bringing you compelling stories and in-depth reporting that you won't hear anywhere else.
0: We're back on Political Rewind. I'm Donna Lowry in for Bill Nygut. I'm joined by the AG, AJC's Patricia Murphy, GPB's Stephen Fowler, Axios Atlanta's Emma Hurt, and Morehouse College's Adrian Jones. We had a really, really heavy first segment, uh, so we're, we're going to put that behind us and, and talk politics and budgets right now. Um, Emma, one day before the shooting, Atlanta Mayor Andre Dickens proposed the largest city budget we've seen. What sort of changes or items is he focused on?
4: Yeah, it's um, $790 million for the city budget. But when you take into account other revenue funds that the city controls, Aviation Department, Watershed, it's $2.5 So not a small amount of money here that we are talking about. Um, some of the things that the mayor has highlighted that are new in the budget of the fiscal year to come starting this summer He's proposing six, about $6 million for more police and fire equipment and vehicles, new vehicles, um, a pay increase for city employees, cost of living adjustment, and an increase in a contribution to the city's affordable housing trust fund as well. Um, plus I would add 6 million for youth programming for youth centers and employment programs And that would be, of course, designed to try to give Atlanta um, youth something to do and programs that will invest in them um, in the years ahead. So that being said, of course, City Council has its has its say on this, too, and and those hearings are are underway now. So, um, you know, more to come on the the different branches of government fighting over the budget. But I, I am particularly watching the police and fire investment here because as we know the public safety training center um debate and pro- project continues and um as you know honestly as we think about the shooting last week as well um and how uh law enforcement responded to that i i have to imagine that the training and coordination and technology that all contributed to, to tracking down the shooter might come into play here when we're discussing the police and fire budget this year.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Especially that some of that technology was amazing—the way they were able to, to track the uh, suspect and all that. Adrian, um, the 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 uh, mayor has declared this the year of the youth, so I guess it wasn't surprising that there was more money in that area.
1: Um, I was pleased to see that. Also, the uh, rehabilitation of the Department of Labor, which I think um, sort of remotely helps kids who ultimately need to be employed and um, have productive things to do as they grow older. Um, And then I was also happy to see attention to mental health and substance abuse. Um, I know substance abuse really uh, went up during the pandemic, and I think that that is lingering. You know, we're seeing with the um, crisis today. Um, So I guess... (laughs) I'm hoping that some of that is a bomb to some of what we're seeing in terms of having people engaged, um, less frustrated, uh, you know, able to have their the kind of medical and um, substance abuse attention that they need. Yeah.
0: Patricia, let's shift gears a little bit from the city to the state and the uh, 2024 budget. Kim, Kim just signed and um, give us a little bit more on that. Remind us of some of the things in that.
2: Uh, Yeah, so the governor signed a $32 billion state budget. Um, The top lines, the biggest news coming out of that, that people will want to hear about, it includes pay raises, $2,000 pay raises for all teachers in the state, including university instructors. Um, Law enforcement will get a big bump up as well, um, particularly state troopers. Some of them could be in line to get $6,000 pay raises. Um, Law enforcement, who work in uh, the juvenile justice facilities, $4,000 pay raises. These are the spots that are really tough to recruit for right now. There is really a nationwide shortage of law enforcement officers and states and cities are finding that they really need to um, bump up their um, pay and benefits in order to attract people just to start the job, let alone stay on the job. Um, So that's a a big piece of the top line. Um, And there's also um, significant funding for tax credits for mega plants. That is really the highlight of the centerpiece of uh, Governor Kemp's plans to continue to grow the Georgia economy. Even as inflation has um, been particularly tough, Georgia has felt quite insulated in some ways, not always, but in some ways, because of all of the new jobs that keep coming because of new manufacturing being placed in um, really all around the state, especially, in rural areas, so he wants to continue to fund that. It doesn't come cheap and it's not free. We are giving away all kinds of tax breaks to very large companies (laughs) to come and uh, create jobs here in the state. Um, There were also some important cuts that the governor placed. Um, Those go back to that standoff we talked about um, between the State House and State Senate. When the State Senate um, uh, cut funding from the university system. That was a bit of retribution for a previous um, deal that they had made, This the Board of Regents had made with Wellstar Health. That's a very long story, but the next chapter of the story is that Governor Kemp has gone in and made some cuts to the state senators who, uh, districts who he felt like might have played a role in those decisions. Um, there also was, uh, you know, a note of caution raised by Blake Tillery, who's the Senate chairman of the Appropriations Committee. He was at the bill signing with Governor Kemp at the mega plant where uh, he signed that bill. And Senator Tillery said, you know, there are, uh, he has concerns about the future of the state economy and the future of the state budget. The last day of session, he talked about significant holes in the budget, even though it is $32 billion. And he has talked, for the last couple of years about what he calls dark clouds on the horizon those are outstanding obligations coming toward the state um and then also just a kind of a general malaise about um the certainty of how much longer Georgia's own state economy can continue to go forward by the national economy is um seeing some seeing some weakness
0: yeah we'll be paying close attention to those re- revenue numbers in the next few months you know with um with Tillery talking about uh, some of the, these holes, uh, kind of uh, projecting what might what we might see. So it'll be interesting to pay close attention to those to see what happens. Um, all right, that budget goes into effect July first, and so we'll see see what happens from there and how some of those, as you mentioned, Patricia, some of the uh, lawmakers who had their bills vetoes uh, vetoed, uh, will react to those um, to that the, that decision by the the governor. Stephen, let's let's uh, change gears a little bit more. We haven't really started to think much, a little about the 2024 presidential election. So it's we're going to really get into it. Of course, Atlanta lost the Democratic Convention to Chicago. And it seems like the secretary of state, Brad Raffensberger felt he dealt another blow right to the party. Tell us more about that move that we learned about recently. Reported
3: on. Right. Well, so the Secretary of State in Georgia is the one that has the sole authority to set when the presidential preference primary is. Um, when Brian Kemp was Secretary of State, he collaborated with a bunch of other Southern states to kind of dominate the so called SEC primary, um, which was a big day where Southern states had an outsized role in the primary. Um, the primary date in the 2020 election was supposed to be in March, and then it was delayed by the pandemic and then delayed again further to coincide with the regular general primary. So Secretary of State Brad Raffensberger is the only one that decides when the presidential primary is. Now, going on for months in the background, the Democrats, uh, the Democratic National Committee, President Biden, have tried to completely reshuffle the top of their presidential primary calendar um, and voted to have Georgia vote in February and be one of the early nominating states, but that was with the big asterisk of if Georgia can actually make that happen. And when this was first floated and talked about last fall, uh, Brad Raffensperger and his office said that's probably not going to happen, not because I'm being mean to Democrats, but because of the rules that the Republicans put in place, because you know the state like georgia runs the primaries but the actual rules for presidential primaries are governed by the rnc and the dnc and so the rnc rules have the same five states as the starting states and say if you go before this you won't get Your delegates, your full delegates to the convention. And so, long story short, Georgia's primary date is March 12th. It's not in February like the Democrats want because the Secretary of State wasn't going to have two different primaries on two different days and also wasn't going to do anything to jeopardize. Delegates from being seated and that's important on the Republican side because there is a contested race on the Democratic side all of this pomp and circumstance and making people angry is for what presumably will be a cakewalk renomination for President Biden. So that's some interesting politics of it, but also practically speaking, the March 12th date is just before the cutoff where uh, the RNC says anything after March 15th has to be winner take all. So if you get the most votes, you get the most delegates. So Georgia could still play an important role in divvying up delegates to Trump and candidates not named Trump. So that was just a very long-winded way of saying primary date, March 12th, mark your calendar.
0: Thank you Stephen and uh, Adrian, I want you to to weigh in on this a little bit too and to talk about the new poll by the Washington Post and ABC News that shows Biden is hitting the lowest approval ratings yet, 36% down from 42% in February.
1: Well, that's one of the reasons why the Democrats are pushing for that early primary date, right? They want that excitement, that political excitement that can come from showing how important Georgia is. And, um, you know, that support for Biden as president. Um, I think that, you know, hopefully people will get behind Biden. Uh, There's still the possibility of him being primaried. I think that's a very dangerous proposition, especially in this particular political environment where the GOP is not clear about their candidate. Um, So. I'm excited to see how that turns out, especially here in Georgia, where the Democrats presumably are not getting exactly what they want, but still should be competitive um, in the primary and in 2024. Yeah.
0: Patricia, that same poll shows about 60 percent of Democratic leaning adults want someone else to run. Weigh in a little bit here
2: nobody else is running. (laughs) I mean, except for RFK Jr. Um, And, you know, I think that polls this early are a really interesting snapshot, kind of take people's temperature. I don't think they are really at all reflective of the potential result. I think we have to get way further down the field. Um, I do think Democrats are a little bit jealous of Republicans at least having one or two choices. Um, I hear from lots of people who say, we got a country of 300 million people and we're gonna have the same two guys again running for president. Um, And they're both, quite old. There's nothing wrong with that, but I think that um, Joe Biden in particular, his speech patterns, which have a lot more to do with his childhood stutter than his um, age, uh, I think gives even Democrats some concern just about how he is presenting himself. Um, Now, I saw him um, at the White House Correspondents' Dinner, and I will tell you the collective mood in the room of journalists and kind of mostly friendly, a very friendly audience to Biden was kind of holding their breath as he was getting going, they're like, "Ah, I hope this goes okay. You know, but he was, I have to say he was very strong. No concerns. Once you leave the room. Um, I don't think that in person he reads quite as, um, hesitating as he does on camera. The problem is that most Americans are going to see him on camera, not in a big ballroom of him cracking jokes. So, um, you know, I think he's going to have to, unlike 2020 really campaign Vigorously, people are going to need to see him in their states and they're going to need to see him kind of rack up consistent appearances of landing the plane every single time. Um, Now the Republicans have their own looming catastrophe on their side. And I think that's what's giving Americans pause like these both feel like campaigns on either side that could just go completely off the tracks. But I do think Biden's track record is something that Democrats are really, really pleased with. Um, even Biden says, hey, I know I'm old, but do you not like what you just saw over the last three years? And he did get a lot done um, that Democrats were looking for. So I think once it's said and done, it's a it's a choice between two people. Most Americans say, I feel like I chose the lesser of two evils in every election, They may feel the same way again, but um, Biden will not have a significant challenger as long as everything's okay through Election Day. Mm -hmm.
0: Emma, weigh in on this, Mm -hmm. even though we're going to have to get a break soon. I wanted to hear your thoughts.
4: I just want to bring up something. If anyone didn't see this story that my colleague Alex Thompson published today, speaking of Biden's age and fitness for four more years. It's about an apparent internal battle in the White House between First Lady Jill Biden and the president over his eating habits and his diet. (laughs) Apparently, I learned, uh, Joe Biden tends to prefer, you know, a beige diet, as Alex Thompson um, described it, and, you know, has complained in the past for people have asked him to eat more vegetables or fish. Um, <laughs> but it's <laughs> something on the minds of many at this time. However, he did point out that uh, former President Trump also apparently um, tends to have a, a a diet that that maybe stays away from fruits and vegetables. And so I think he said <laughs> we might be looking at a, a race between two men that eat like eight year olds is what oh, uh, <laughs> okay. a line from the story. And so there's another uh, aside, You know, I don't, we don't we don't talk about that so much when we talk about the president's uh, reelection campaign.
0: So something for the radar, everyone. Yeah, it's it's so stereotypical to talk about the the uh, the wife talking about what the husband is eating, though, too. So but I think it's it's interesting. So two to men who we were talking about the age a lot eating like eight year olds. I love it. Thanks, Emma. <laughs> um, I've got to get to a final break right now, so we'll get that out of the way. We'll be right back on Political Rewind. You're listening to Political Rewind on GPB. I'm Donna Lowry in for Bill, Bill Nygut. And with the AJC's Patricia Murphy, GPB's Stephen Fowler, Axial Atlanta's Emma Hurt, and Morehouse College's Adrian Jones. Um, we're coming up, uh, as we come up on the end of the show, Patricia, I do want to talk about a fascinating column that, on an area that's really interested me uh, that featured a panel regular— on on this show, Rick Dent on political advertising and AI. So tell us a little bit about it, because the whole the idea of AI, I I seem to be you know caught up in reading everything I can, and certainly read your column.
2: Oh, thank you. Well, yeah, we there's so much information about AI, artificial intelligence, <clears throat> all throughout the media, and so I called Rick Dent to say, hey, how do you think? Um, AI might be used in the future of politics. And he's like, Well, I'm already using AI. What are you talking about? Um, so he uh he said that he uses it to kind of just generate a few ideas, uh, but he said he would never ever pass AI material off as his own. Um, and he certainly just uses, has used it before as a starting point. Um, but more specifically, he's also started an AI newsletter, not AI generated, but a, a newsletter for his clients to better understand how AI is being used in the political space. Um, the biggest concern I heard from people talking about AI is, um, uh, this uh, the use of AI to create extremely realistic uh, fake uh, audio and video that's almost imperceptible, particularly when it comes to audio. So the idea of a campaign or a reporter receiving leaked audio in the future, um, you'll need to know that that was not uh, artificially generated um, by AI. Um, There also is an example of the RNC posting um, an ad using AI technology to create this really dystopian view of San Francisco and saying, this is the future you're looking at with Joe Biden. Um, It will just be much harder in the future for both, voters and campaigns and reporters to recognize what's real and what's not and uh one ai expert said you know if you thought that fake news was bad kind of this concept of fake news stories getting a life of their own they're like there is no way to unimprint an image in somebody's brain once they've seen it um and so it's just something to be very careful of and the white house is actually holding a panel this week to talk about how to potentially regulate um, AI and its uses in the future, and I think that campaign content will be an important place for them to focus.
0: Yeah, it's really scary. I think as a, as journalists um, who are you know uh, covering all of this to try to to figure out how how do you know how do you how do you figure it out? You know, um, th- I think that that is going to make it tough. I'm wondering, Adrian, are you seeing it in the classrooms? Um, you know, at at Morehouse or what are, are students using it?
1: I think so. (laughs) It's Um. hard to know. It's hard to know. Part of the deal with AI, of course, is that you don't know what you're seeing, right? So um, our institution has begun to talk about it. And I'm of the opinion that I'm going to have to figure out, sort of have to swim along with it, right? How do you integrate this new technology? Because ultimately, um, you know, you're handed your submissions. um, you do your best to us uh, you know, ascertain whether or not they're original, but, um, you know, folks are already taking advantage of opportunities to um have some of their work pre-prepared. Um, I've taught at a number of colleges that is certainly not new. <laughs> so um, I think AI definitely. Looks attractive to students because perhaps it saves them time or energy or um, the work itself. Yeah,
0: you know, um, Bill Nigget did. I had a conversation with two Georgia Tech professors on AI, and they said they need to focus on education and literacy around this tool so humans understand what they're dealing with, what impact. That it will have on all of us. I can say personally that I have a daughter who wanted to lay out a plan for me for she's, you know, uh, she's an adult. She's not in school or anything. She wanted to land up, lay out a plan for me to do the Peachtree Road Race. And so she put in all the tool, all the information about me. And how little exercise I get. <laughs> and so, <laughs> anyway, it, it I watched as it, you know, completed a plan day by day, week by week on what I should do leading up to July 4th. And, you know, I just stood there with my mouth open that, that it could do. And it, it kind of knew me <laughs> from the information she put in. So I think that's interesting. Um, I wondered, uh, you know, Stephen... Any thoughts on all of this, especially as you bring a child into the world?
3: <laughs> well, I'll just say like on the on the AI front, like on the AI writing front, AI writing is not very good. It's not, you know, it's not very good. It's like in this essay, I will. And, you know, it like it, you can kind of tell. I mean, with AI photos, you can tell because usually they have like. The wrong number of fingers. I saw one the other day where somebody was like, this is almost perfect unless you zoom in. And it was like a person with three legs. Like, yeah, okay, perfect. Sure. But same with audio. I mean, right now, the use of AI audio, like uh, people are, uh, there's a bunch of videos out there that's supposed to be like Donald Trump, Joe Biden, and Barack Obama playing video games. Uh, and it's kind of funny. If you don't pay attention, it kind of sounds like them, but if you listen, you're like, this is very clearly edited audio. Something sounds off, but also we live in a world where like you don't need AI, and people get fooled all the time by parody accounts or other things like that, so like, we don't need technology to be stupid, but I do think technology will find new ways for people to believe the things that they want to believe, uh, and we just have to be on guard about it, Um, otherwise, you know, sure, I'll believe that, you know, Joe Biden and Donald Trump play video games together on Friday nights. (laughs) Emma?
4: You know, it's interesting that we talk about this because, um, the CEO of OpenAI, the company that created ChatGPT, was actually at Clark Atlanta on Friday. And my colleague covered it. He's, it was his first listening session that he's planning to do around the country to talk about the technology and how to make it more inclusive and how to fix things that are wrong with it how to correct it when things go wrong because that is as we know it's it's technology it's created by us and there are flaws in it just as anything that humans make at any time um it is a particularly powerful form of technology for sure but it's an it seems to me like it's a very active um ongoing thing and and as um, problems emerge, they will hopefully get repaired without too widespread of damage. Um, I, I mean, I just want to say I have a friend that works in um, PR, actually, and he told me that he asked GBT to write a press release for him about a certain topic, and he was like, I didn't have any edits. And I said, well, isn't press release writing maybe the worst part of your job anyway? So maybe this will make your job better, question mark? I don't know. But it is true that it's here, and and finding a way to make it work for us instead of fighting against it um, might be be something
0: to think about. Yeah. Patricia, this was the first of several articles for you, right?
2: Yes. I'm doing a series while we have this relative lull and, you know, I feel like I'm just jinxing everything by saying there's a relative. Don't jinx the cycle. (laughs) (laughs) Because the minute I decided this, all sorts of things went haywire. Um, A series of uh, columns looking at just kind of some big questions that I have about where politics is headed in Georgia in the future. Um, Particularly, the next thing I'm uh, looking into is how um, the new manufacturing plants, these uh, really big wins for Governor Kemp um, are going into areas wh- where there is practically nothing. These are hay fields. They are standing up basically small cities around them. How does that change the politics in those areas? Um, what does that do to the politics of the state if we are infilling um, with new jobs, high-paying jobs? Are the people who live there getting some of those jobs? Um, what does it do to the local feel of a place that people move to because it's a small town um, if it's not a small town anymore. And so um, I'm looking at the politics of that and then um, have a a few others in the hopper.
0: Yeah, so there's there's a lot more to talk about on this and we'll have you back on the show and all of you. I just want to thank you all for being on the show. That's all the time we have for the day. You guys have been great. Patricia Murphy, Stephen Fowler, Adrian Jones, Emma Hurt joining the panel today. I'd like to thank the producers, Natalie Mendenhall, Chase McGee, as well as engineers Victoria Evans-Cash and Buddha Lamb. And don't forget Political Rewind at PoliticsGPB on Twitter and at GPB News. I'm Donna Lowry. Thanks for tuning in. We'll be back with another edition of Political Rewind tomorrow.